invite you to turn the Word of God this morning to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. In recent years we have given over in December our attention to the biblical texts of the biblical text you find in Handel's Messiah. If you're not familiar with Handel's Messiah, in one sense I can say don't worry too much. I'm not here to preach uh, music to you. I would say it's, it's one of those things that I think everyone should listen through at least once in their lives. Uh, so you have some awareness of uh, something of, of deep uh, cultural significance. And you may find, as, as I did, that um, it, it sweetens uh, with repeated hearing and exposure. I think the first time I heard it, I, I really wasn't getting much from it, in part because of my ignorance of Scripture. And I did not have the texts in front of me, so it, I, sometimes I was struggling even to pick, pick up what they were saying because some of the verses I didn't really know uh, so, the next time I had the verses in front of me, and I received much more profit just thinking and musing on it that way. So, I encourage you, I sent out an email yesterday just as we have spent the last few years in this. We have gone through part one, we have started into part two, and we are in Isaiah 53, which gets our eyes then focused on the sufferings of the Lord Jesus. So if you have absolutely no interest in Messiah, don't worry, it's all right, it's fine. You don't need to know. We'll just preach through the texts over this December as the Lord keeps us and spares us and you will no doubt profit from it. But how appropriate that as we come to the Lord's table, that in the Lord's providence we would pick up here in Isaiah 53 and our text will be verse 3. But we'll read from verse 1. This tremendous text that is before us and all of its specificity regarding our Savior and His sufferings. Isaiah 53 verse 1, let us hear the word of the Lord. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God. And afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, 
And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul. And shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. Ending our reading at the close of the chapter. Let us pray. Let us close before God in prayer, asking for His help. Lord, we need Thy help. We always need Thy help. We have an enemy. He would try even now to steal away the seed of the Word. He would try even now to distract our minds. He would try to limit the profit that we might receive from the infallible Word of God. We pray, please, Come in victory by the power of the Spirit. To preacher and to listener, may there be that ministry that is of God. Help now, Lord, advance thy kingdom. Save, restore, feed thy sheep and lambs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever considered how important it is that our emotional frame is sanctified by God. That the way we think and how we respond, that emotional aspect of our being is to be worked upon by the Spirit so that it comes into line with what would more glorify our God. We have, of course, even in this company this morning, no doubt, those that tend to be more generally joyful, as well as those who are more, generally speaking, melancholy. Maybe one is married to the other <laughs> in the same household. This is the reality. We are so different, so varied. And yet, it is wrong for us to exclude ourselves to what comes natural to us, to say that this, this is only the way I should respond. This is just how I am. It's how I am made. Those who always want to be joyful need to recognize the seasons for sorrow, not be afraid of them, not imagine in some way they're being tormented. We need to recognize there's a place for sorrow. And on the flip side, as I have emphasized enough, I imagine 
There's a need for those who tend to a more melancholy disposition also to see the need to be joyful. There's a need to be joyful, to reflect it, and to find grounds and reasons for our joy. Since the fruit of the Spirit is joy, as we see in Galatians 5, we know that our Lord Jesus perfectly manifested joy. We can be sure that He did not contradict what is the fruit of the Spirit, since He had the Spirit without measure. He was not of the leaky kind of person that we are, where we can have our our good days and our bad days and our highs and our lows. He was consistent in his expression of the fruit of the Spirit in all of its facets given to us in Galatians 5. And we're thinking of joy here particularly. And he was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. He was anointed with this oil of gladness. It was upon him. He was a truly, and is, we may say, a truly joyful person. And yet, we have read here in verse 3 of Isaiah 53 that he is a man of sorrows. A man of sorrows. Now, before we look at that, and our text will be not the entirety of verse 3, we're just thinking about what is expressed in Messiah... He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We will we'll end it there. We'll not look to the rest of the verse. But before we look at that, I want us to realize that the prophet himself understands sorrow. I see it from verse 1. The lament of the prophet, what is coming from his heart, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed, is a lament. It is a preacher feeling the natural desire for success in his ministry and not seeing the fruit that he might want. Now, Isaiah was told, we'll not turn to it, but in Isaiah 6, where you have the details of this prophet's call, he is told that people are not going to respond. They're going to hear, but they won't respond to it. They're going to see things, but they're not going to really perceive. And there's going to be this deadness that will mark the generation to whom he ministers. But even with that knowledge, with that awareness, with that revelation given to him, he doesn't come to a point where he says, well, God told me no one's going to care what I say. Therefore, it would be a waste of my energy and my emotional strength to be worried about the fact that no one is hearing or responding. Instead, he is a man of sorrows. Now, he's not marked by sorrow the way Jeremiah is marked by sorrow. But he has it. You see it in this expression. He, he feels the lament of heart that people won't respond to the word preached. Now we too are to have broken hearts for those who will not respond in our day as well. A broken heart is often the bridge God uses to carry the truth from the living to the dead. A broken heart. When you see someone with a broken heart When you're in the presence of someone who with brokenness communicates the truth to you, 
Now, it's not everything. God is sovereign. We have preachers who are hard. No preacher is perfect except for Christ. But there seems to be, there, I think we can say that generally speaking, the, the preacher with a broken heart, the Christian with a broken heart, will tend to find more, to, for lack of a better word, success, in getting people to listen and hearten. It certainly made a profound impact on me when my mom, pleading with her unbelieving son, is doing so with tears. Tears. Pleading for my salvation. It's hard to dismiss that as nothing. Even the Apostle Paul, did anyone understand the sovereignty of God and salvation greater than Paul? Was anyone able to expound on it more than Paul? And so he's able to write in, in Romans 1 and, and recognize God even turning a debauched generation, a, a rebelling generation, turning them so that they're, they're given over to wickedness even more and more. He can articulate that and express that when he, but when he stands in Athens before an idolatrous people, his soul is grieved. And he doesn't stand up there and, and preach Romans 1 to them. He even condescends and, and uses language from their own poets, trying to bridge the gap between their lack of knowledge and where they need it to get to in understanding God made flesh and dying and rising again from the dead. And that came from a heart that felt for them, a heart that desired them to know the truth. Not simply that he might explain it, not simply that he might declare it, but he might see it effectually work in their hearts. I say, beloved, there's a need for us to have more of a mark of sorrow and brokenness for our own generation. And I think we are entering into, I think things will also get worse before they get better, but I, I think there, there is a mark of a, of a shift in our generation. I don't want to exaggerate it. But this past week, I was seeing a, a professor at Stanford University talking about, and this is, every, all his colleagues are going to see this, this isn't done on a corner. Everyone at that university is going to see that and know this. This professor, the scientist at Stanford, declaring he believes in God. And more and more, he is praying. Now, does he know the Lord? I have no idea. What his understanding of God is, that's not the topic for here, for now. I don't know, but I'll say this. I remember 20 years ago, and I remember in the, the ramping up of the rhetoric from Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and the, the, the evangelistic atheist, and you wouldn't have raised your head in an academic setting, especially that one that would be liberal-leaning. You wouldn't have raised your head and said, as a scientist, I believe in God. It would have discredited you. Your papers would have been considered almost without value should you come out publicly and say that. And so I am seeing things like this and I begin to wonder, is there a shift? Is there a change? Are, are, are things actually, at least in some areas, in some ways, actually slightly better? Slightly than, than even 20 years ago? I don't know. Time will tell. But regardless, regardless, we have perishing people surrounding us 
people who need the gospel and they need it to be communicated from a heart that bleeds for them. That we actually care. We're to have a love and sorrow for sinners. Maybe people are listening more now than ever, at least in recent times. Maybe. So as we look at verse 3, the opening half of verse 3, and I encourage you to, to listen and just ponder these words. If you do, give yourself, many of us listen to Messiah through this time of the year particularly. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As I looked at that verse and prepared, and, and I've preached this text before, I realized that after I had done most of the preparation for this one, I was like, hang on, I think I've preached on this before. So anyway, that's, that's, that's different. I didn't count, look at that really at all. But as I was going over it and thinking about just the condescension of Christ, as I'll title my message, how low did Christ go? There's a question. How low did Christ go? First, note with me, low enough to be perceived as nothing. Low enough to be perceived as nothing. Look what we are told. He is despised. He is despised. Perceived as worthless. Has the idea of men dismissing him, mocking him. Now, I want us to think of a number of ways Firstly, to consider how Jesus was despised, how he was despised. First, they respected, in his day, they respected lesser men. They respected lesser men. I think we can see this even with regard to, to John the Baptist. That even John the Baptist, as a preacher, as a prophet, was treated with more respect than our Lord Jesus Christ. We read in John 1.19, this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? And I could be wrong here, but this seems to be a well-intentioned inquiry. They, 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 they're, they're actually wondering, who are you? It's not the way they came at the latter part of Christ's ministry, intending to expose him, to catch him in his words, to find some fault with him. It's distinct. It's different. They're coming here. It would appear to me, to be well-intentioned. This is not how the Lord Jesus was treated. John, the son of a priest, was treated with a measure of respect. Christ, the son of a carpenter, no such respect. And this is to say nothing about the general way in which men respected pretty much everyone more than the Lord Jesus. Whether we're right or wrong regarding John, we know it's true concerning men themselves in their own little parties and cliques among the Pharisees and the scribes and among the Jews in general who did not believe. They all valued lesser men more than Christ. You see the, the despising in how they regarded lesser men. Secondly, they not only respected lesser men, but they preferred the worst of men. They preferred the worst of men. You can see this through his ministry, but it, it reaches its apex leading up to the cross, doesn't it? When the Jews were given the choice between the release of Jesus, of Nazareth, or Barabbas, who do they choose? When Peter is 
reminding the Jews of this in Acts 3.14. He says, Ye have denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. You desired a murderer. Christ, who is giving himself, giving his life for the sins of the world, offering himself, presenting himself as an atoning sacrifice, the Lord Jesus, who is under the judgment of men, he never took life. He is giving his own life for the life of others. And men are so filled with wrath and indignation and unbelief, they prefer the worst of men. He was despised to this degree. Yes, take, take a murderer over Jesus. You know, we look back on that and we think, well, that's a, something in history. It's not really something that we see today. But is that true? Is it? What, what is the true I put it this way. Is murder exclusively to be seen in terms of a man taking another man's life? What is the real murder of men? The original murder of men is sin itself. It's sin that murders men. Satan comes to tempt, leading men to sin because sin will murder men. The day you eat thereof, you will die. Sin is the murdering of men. Realizing that, let me ask you then, do men desire that which murders over Christ today? Yes. And we have, all of us here, all of us here, if we have comprehended all that has taken place up to now in this service, Specifically, when we got to the law and we're reading through it and we're seeing our shortcomings in relation to that and we say, yep, I'm guilty of that. I'm I have done that. What are we admitting? We have desired a murderer. Oh, it's not personified in Barabbas. But you see it in the sin. We choose. We choose sin. And we, the people of God, still do this. You look at the Jews and you say, I can't believe that they chose Barabbas. They chose a murderer over Jesus. That's what you do when you sin. That's what you do. You choose the murderer. If you're here and you're not saved, that's what you do too. You choose the murderer. You choose the sin. Oh, yes, they preferred the worst of men. Let us learn what we ought from such things because we're not so far removed from them as we might imagine. Thirdly, they treated him like sin. They treated him like sin. He is despised. He is despised. And you see him being despised in this regard as well. They treated him like sin. What do I mean? John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus when? By night. Comes to him by night. And I was thinking about this. I'd, I'd never thought of this before. 
but it was a kind of harrowing thought in my preparations this week. What do men do under the cover of darkness? Nicodemus is coming to Jesus under the cover of darkness. There's a reason for that. He does not want to be seen with Jesus, interacting with Jesus, at least not at that point. He's not ready for that. Therefore, therefore, it's as if Nicodemus was going to do something unbecoming and wicked. Like he was going to seize upon the services of a, a woman of the night and he doesn't want to be seen or known that that's what he's doing. Under the cover of darkness. That's what men do. They do it to this day. They give themselves to sins. Things that they know will devalue the reputation that will make them be perceived as less. Those things that they know they can't get away with without it ruining the reputation or some other consequences for their actions, they do under the cover of darkness. They do when eyes can't see them. And so Jesus then gets treated like he's some awful sin. Nicodemus comes to him by night. He is so despised by men that they can't come to him openly. It's as if he was some great sin that they're participating in. Of course, to many, and this is what Nicodemus understood, Nicodemus understood the great contention that was surrounding the Lord Jesus. And so it was as if it was sin, if it became known that he is has gone to him publicly and, and spoken to him kindly and in a friendly fashion and even in a way that we might indicate his own curiosity. He is despised. Treated him like they might treat sin. For they declared him a sinner. He is despised. They declared him a sinner. Matthew eleven nineteen. What is he called? A glutton and a wine-bibber. This is to mark him out as a sinner. In Matthew 27, 63, what do they say? We remember that that deceiver said. Oh, they're putting Jesus under the category of the very commandment we read this morning. He breaks the ninth commandment. He does not tell the truth. He is a deceiver. He is despised. Five, they reckoned him a devil. They reckoned him a devil. John 8, 48. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well, think of it, say we not well, that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil. He is despised. He is despised. They respected lesser men. They preferred the worst of men. They treated him like sin. They declared him a sinner. They reckoned him a devil. It still goes on. He is despised. Is he despised here? Is he? Is he despised? Here, 
Could it be that anyone would be here this morning and you despise Christ? As I have indicated, there is a sense in which we all have elements that contradict our profession of love and categorize us with the despisers. But I, I trust that in each of us here this morning, there is an overarching affection that takes absolutely no joy, no pleasure, and gives no defense to any wrong thinking towards Christ. Especially think of that pet sin, that Barabbas, that Barabbas, that besetting sin of your life is the Barabbas, a murderer. You know it. You know it. Because he actually has already managed to murder the true affection you should have for Christ. Because if you're here this morning and you're somewhat backslidden, you're not where you should be and not where you once were before God, he's already murdering your soul. That besetting sin. Make sure you put it to death today. Come to this table. Let your Barabbas die. Consider also how Jesus was rejected. Not only how he was despised, but rejected. He is despised and rejected. The verb means to cease or forbear. It has the idea that it would come to an end. He was despised and rejected. And there, because of the obscurity of it, a number of ideas and interpretations have been given, but without going into all of that, my best understanding is that what, what Isaiah is recording here is men saw him as a man. Men saw him as a man. He's rejected because he's just a man. He's going to cease. He's going to come to an end. He's, he's, he's just like the rest of us. There's no dignity, no distinctive value. And so it has the idea of they, they leave off from him. They, they, they cease from giving themselves to him. They would value others more than him. So he is rejected. He is rejected. You see this illustrated very powerfully in the well-known language of John 1.11. He came to his own and his own received him not. To receive him not is their rejection of him. We ought to learn from this. Again, there is within us all this potential of rejection, rejecting Jesus Christ. We can learn a lot from the creation other than ourselves, the creation beyond ourselves, and how they respond 
to the Lord Jesus, even though they don't have the same knowledge of his redemptive love towards them. Even though they are without that, they can be instructive to us. For example, did the angels dare to ignore him when they were sent to bear witness to the birth? When they're commissioned to go, go, let the shepherds know that they sit on their hands, that they imagine themselves, well, sometime or later, or maybe we might negotiate exactly how that might look. Or before we give praise and joy and indication of what's about to unfold, we'd like to just see what's going to happen. We wouldn't, we want to go ahead of ourselves here. No, no, no. They, they did not dare ignore the command. Did the wind dare to disobey in Matthew 8? And they were called to cease. No, the wind immediately obeys. Did the fish of the sea dare to disregard him? Matthew 7, when he sent out the fish for one fish and get the coin. It's not just that he found a fish, that there was a fish, it was that specific fish had the coin governed by his hand to the very hook brought in wouldn't dare disregard him and yet men the crown of God's creation reject him he is despised and rejected of men it's quite it's quite something Rejected of men. Don't you see the insanity of it? Don't you? Don't you see how creation listens in anticipation to his commands? Yearns for an opportunity to express their gratitude by doing something? Whether it be angels or, or wind or fish of the sea, don't you see how ready they are? And we, we will reject. We reject his command. We reject him in rejecting the command. You can't, you can't say you accept him by rejecting the command. You can't do that. You know, you, you, if you had a sovereign, you lived under a monarchy, that monarch tells you to do something. If you don't obey the command, it's a rejection of him. Yet here we are, here we are, receiving from God's hands such mercies that are beyond what we could list. Or we would all feel the limitations of our language to articulate what He has done for us, what goodness we've received from His hand. We play games. We play games. Even the professing church. You and me here professing love and appreciation for Jesus Christ. There lies within us, not dormant, a very active impulse which is inclined to the rejection. So that when he gives a command, we might question it. When he gives a command, we might try to alter it. 
Or we might try to delay it or something. We, 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 we don't fall into the same immediate obedience of the rest of creation. And yet, it's for us he came to do this. So he is low enough to be perceived as nothing. Hopefully we've established that point. Perceived as nothing. He's nothing. And just despise him and reject him. Secondly, low enough to be marked by sorrow. Low enough to be marked by sorrow. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows. The Hebraism to express the height of misery. A man of sorrows. See first the humanity of it. He is a man of sorrows. Yes, he is the God-man, but it's his humanity that experiences this. The divinity does not experience the sorrow. We've dealt with that before, the impassibility of God. But it's a very real thing for the humanity of Christ. And so it's focusing upon the humanity. It's not God's suffering, it's man suffering. True humanity. Not only the humanity of it, but think of the plurality of it. He's a man of sorrows. Not sorrow. But sorrows, you could equally understand the plurality if it just said a man of sorrow. But it's emphasized by the plurality. Think of the treatment he received. Compounding the sense of sorrow. Persecution. Was he persecuted? Most, preacher, most preachers, most Christians, if they're going to be persecuted, they tend to not immediately be threatened by death. Our Lord Jesus, as soon as he begins his ministry, starts in a synagogue in his hometown. And by the time he's done, they're trying to drive him off a cliff to end his life. Persecution. The lies they told about him, the contempt with which they held him, the unkindness they showed to him. Sorrow. We, we avoid this. We avoid this. We avoid every form of, of mistreatment, don't we? we? We try so hard to be loved by everyone. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. Please don't misunderstand and say, pastor told us to go out and be hated by everyone. No, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. But when we start twisting and diverting our attention away from fidelity to Christ because we're really being motivated by a desire to be treated well. And that's the highest objective. We're not following in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus. Not only the treatment he received, but the, the weakness he suffered. Think of the sorrows that come by the weakness he suffered. He, he's, he's a man suffering in this body. He who, as God, upholds the entire universe. He upholds the entire universe. The fact that men are being sustained in their lives, both, both Jew and Gentile, both those taught in the scriptures as well as the heathen and far-flung nations, he is, he is upholding it all by virtue of being God. And at the same time, he himself is left to feel in his humanity 
the diminishing or the want of the very things that sustain our lives. So he suffers hunger. He suffers thirst. He suffers weariness from lack of sleep. These are all part of his sorrows. No one finds joy in, in extreme forms of thirst. No one finds joy in extreme forms of hunger. No one finds joy when you can't get to sleep, when you're, when you're broken with weariness. Some of you know these things by experience. And you find no joy. These sorrows were multiplied upon him. He could have given himself to sleep, but the, the vastness of the work, the, the need of the moment, took him into the mountain to, to pray all night unto God. And then go about his day as if he had a full night's sleep. Think also not only the treatment he received, the weakness he suffered, but then the sufferings he anticipated. The sufferings he anticipated. The sorrow of anticipating what was ahead of him. Think about this. Christ knows. He had Isaiah 53. He had the other passages that plainly teach us of the sufferings of the Messiah. The Jews tried to deny them. Sometimes they even have, in the past, tried to imagine there must be two Messiahs. Because one speaks so clearly of his rule and reign. The other one, passages speak clearly of his, of his sorrow and his anguish. They try to reconcile it. They can't imagine it in the one and same person. But he reads this. From a child he is reading about himself. About himself. As he comprehends more and more what's involved in his humanity and then he's going and he's, he's going up to Passover. He's, he's, he's experiencing Passover. And he's, he's beginning to put two and two together and he says, that lamb is me. He stands in the Day of Atonement, seeing all that's represented, and he's anticipating the sufferings, and he says, that's me. And the sin offering, and the, the burnt offering, and you could go through it every time he stood in worship. It's not the way you stand in worship and you consider it. You, you come to this, you see these emblems, a body broken. It was his body. It was his blood. But for him, it's him. It's my body. It's my blood. Every representation, every depiction, all of his intense worship, for him to go to public worship was an act of experiencing sorrow. It had to be. You come in joy. You come in the freedom of it's been done for him to come and see the sacrifices, to attend the temple, to be there. It's, it's just one reminder after another of what lies ahead of him. I was saying to 
to Anthony yesterday talking about whether or not John 8, 57 indicates to us the impact of these sorrows upon the human frame of Christ. Remember there the Jew says, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? If I, some of you are in around 30. If I said something to you that would indicate that you're kind of, wait, I know you're not 50. You would think, that's kind of insulting. <laughs> like, you, you know, you, 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 can't even, you can't even say 40. You know, you've, you've gone to 50 to make sure that I look that old. And I don't know. I can't say for sure. It, it's one of those things that's it's a little bit culturally removed. So for us, if I said that to you, if I said to a 30-year-old, you're not yet 50, you'd, you'd probably be insulted. So what? <laughs> you, 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 of course I'm not yet 50. I'm not, I'm not yet 40. Not yet 35. So I don't know for sure. I can't say for sure, but I did, I did wonder. I wonder. I wonder if that is an indication that such were the sorrows upon his physical frame that it actually was telling upon his body. So that as they looked at him, well, he's definitely not 50, but he might be over 40. We should keep that in mind in all of our obsession with youth, shouldn't we? Because if it be true, and I don't, I, I don't know if I can establish it from Scripture, I think the implication would be that it could be established with, with sound reason that Christ sacrificed his youthfulness for our salvation. That he endures such sorrows that his body is being broken and here we are obsessing, obsessing just to live another year and he is pouring out everything. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't appreciate and value every day God gives you. I'm just, I'm just helping you rewire some of the, the thinking that we have, the carnal thinking. And finally, very quickly, low enough to be acquainted with sickness. Low enough to be acquainted with sickness and acquainted with grief. It's a little mysterious. I've used the word sickness, and you might be saying, well, why didn't you say grief? Well, because the word for grief is nearly always translated as sickness or disease. And yet nearly all translations translate it as grief. So in one sense, it's not wrong because sickness is a form of grief. But you look at the passage, you look at verse 5, and we'll get there in due course to this text. The end of it, with his stripes, we are healed. Healing. That brings in the idea of sickness and disease, doesn't it? And you have it in verse 3. You have it in verse 4. Surely he hath borne our sicknesses, griefs. So, I, I, in thinking about that, his acquaintance with sickness, two things before we close here. First, Christ stooped to identify with humanity in their worst physical condition. He stooped to identify with humanity in their worst physical 
condition. The blind, as you see in the Gospels, the blind were despised and rejected of men, yet not rejected by Christ. The lepers were despised and rejected of men, yet not rejected by Christ. Those like the woman with the issue of blood was despised and rejected of men, yet not rejected by Christ. He identified with them. He touched those that no others would touch. I want you to think about the humanity of Christ in that way. I want you to think about the man at God's right hand. The, listen, the man at God's right hand who touched and was in proximity to those that others wouldn't want to be near. And you know the one thing that's missing, there are other things we could talk about, but certainly one thing that came to mind as I was thinking this week that the Gospels cannot give to us. Aside, sometimes we wish we could see things for ourselves, but sometimes it would be good for us to smell things because Christ was in proximity to smells. Smells that come from disease. Smells that come from people who are blind and beggarly. Smells that come from people who have no one to take care of them. And he doesn't turn. He doesn't make them feel uncomfortable. He doesn't make them feel like they can't approach him. He is immersed in the worst of physical condition. So remember that because he is there when cancer is emasculating. He is there when strokes are disabling. He is there when arthritis is debilitating. He is there when Crohn's is embarrassing. He is there when Parkinson's is unrelenting. He is there when dementia is personality altering. And he is there when pain is crippling. And everyone else is looking at you and wondering... They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. He is there. Don't, don't make a disconnect between the man who ministered here on the earth and the man who's at God's right hand. There was none he turned from in their sickness. None. Christ stooped to identify with humanity in their worst physical condition. But two, Christ stooped to identify with humanity in their greater spiritual condition their greater spiritual condition and by greater I mean it is more it's even more significant when you're reading here acquainted with grief acquainted with sickness and disease <laughs> this, this is where reading the entire prophecy can be helpful go back to chapter 1 What was Israel's problem? Isaiah 1. Verse 4. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. A seed of evildoers. Children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is 
no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Is Isaiah thinking about their physical diseases and sicknesses? No. He is dealing with the spiritual reality caused by their sin, their iniquity. And when you go through, the prophet's able to tell them that there is coming a Messiah, the servant of Jehovah, who is despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with sickness. And yes, it gets manifested as a result of the curse in real physical ailment, but it's only a revelation of the true problem we're facing. Problem of sin in the heart. In some ways, I don't say this lightly. I do not say this lightly. In some ways, there is a mercy in such physical debilitation that you recognize your weakness and you're driven to Christ in search for an answer. Because the rest of us are under the illusion that we're well when we have a, a really sick heart and soul that we can't see. And we are just as much need for Jesus Christ to come and heal us, bind up our wounds, and draw us to himself. How low did Christ go? You see it here. Despised, rejected of men, as if he was nothing. A man of sorrows and acquainted, familiar with sickness and disease. Yeah, these very emblems tell us his acquaintance with sickness, doesn't it? The consequences of sin he bears on the cross. That disease of sin brings him to death itself. He rises again the third day and he promises to all who believe life. Life. Let's bow together in prayer. In these moments, child of God, you prepare your heart. You're about to remember the Lord Jesus in the way he appointed. Do not be mindless and indifferent. When the bread and the cup will be passed, take that time to meditate, take that time to think. Make sure to praise God for the man of sorrows. Lord, we pray.
give grace to us as we come to the table. Help us to come and by faith to seize on the life-giving power found in Christ alone. Maybe there are some here this morning who are not yet saved. Though they may and ought to let the emblems pass them. I pray, O God, that before the close of this service, they by faith will reach out and seize upon Christ. Thank you for the one who's willing to receive us with all of the ugliness of our sin, with all of the stench of our disobedience. Draw near, Lord Jesus, even now, and wash us in thy shed blood. We pray all this in Jesus' name.